missed and praise God. Good to see everyone. On October 15, 1999, a 34-year-old production manager named Michael White took the longest smoke break of his life. He was working late one Friday night in the McGraw-Hill building on 49th Street in New York City. And after stepping out for a cigarette, he came back in. He was returning to his office on the 39th floor when the elevator stopped abruptly. White initially wasn't concerned. He walked over to the control panel. He pushed the button for his floor again, fully expecting that the elevator would re-engage and continue taking him to the 39th floor. But when nothing happened, White started to become a little bit worried. Finally, he pressed the alarm on the elevator, letting it ring out through the building, but nothing happened and no one came. It was 11 p.m. on a Friday night and the building was deserted. Five minutes turned into 10. 10 minutes turned into 15. 15 turned into 30 and white began to panic. He was stuck and there was no one there to free him. He didn't have his cell phone with him. He didn't have a watch. He didn't have any food. He didn't have any water. All he had was a pack of Rolaids and a few cigarettes. 30 minutes turned into an hour. An hour turned into five hours. Five hours turned into 10. 10 turned into 20, then 25, then 30, then 35 hours. White began to suffer from dehydration and thought that he might die in this elevator, trapped in this New York elevator, stuck between the 12th and the 13th floors of the McGraw-Hill building. There was nothing that he could do. He tried to pry open the doors to the elevator, but it was an express elevator, so nothing was outside of the doors except a concrete wall. He tried to escape through the, uh, the hatch in the top of the elevator, but it was bolted shut from the outside. There was literally nothing he could do and nowhere he could go. There was a camera, a security camera, in the elevator that was filming the entire episode, and several times Michael White looked up to the camera and waved and tried to signal and tried to alert somebody that he was stuck, but unfortunately there was nobody on the other end of that camera receiving the signal. The video recording of White's time in this elevator is online, uh, and you can see when you watch the footage, um, it's sped up, you know, you don't have to watch it for 41 hours straight, but that's how long it took for White before he could get out. His, you watch his, 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 his emotional state run the gamut from hopeful optimism to frustration to anxiety to fear to anger and then ultimately to despair and resignation. And it wasn't until Sunday afternoon at 4 p.m. Remember, he got in the elevator at 11 p.m. On, on Friday. Nearly 41 hours later that he heard a voice crackle through the intercom, a security person saying, is there someone in there? And Mike said, yes, there is someone in here. And the voice came back through the intercom and said, what are you doing in there? <laughs> That's not what you want to ask somebody who's been in the elevator for 41 hours. Michael White said, get me the expletive out of here. Fill in your own expletive. 
A few minutes later, the elevator gently landed on the ground floor. The doors opened. Michael White walked out free after 41 hours of being stuck in an elevator by himself, trapped, never knowing if he's even going to get out. Three things we learn from this story. Number one, don't smoke. (laughs) Number two, don't try to be a rock star employee that works at 11 p.m. on Friday night. Just clock out at 5 p.m. when other people are around. But what's really important for us to learn from this story is that in life, when we get stuck, we need to know how to get unstuck. When we are trapped, we need to know how to get free. Because stuck doesn't just happen to elevators. Stuck happens to people. Stuck happens in marriages where two people are not able to move forward and they don't know what to do, and they feel like their marriage is just at a standstill. Emotionally, they're not connecting, and they don't know how to move forward. Stuck can happen in singleness. You want to meet somebody. You want to get married. You want to move forward in life, but you're just stuck, and it's like nothing that you do seems to get you unstuck. You can't get traction. You don't know how to move forward. Stuck can happen in your finances, where you get trapped by debt or you get trapped in spending beyond your means and suddenly you don't know how to get out of it. Bills are coming in. You can't pay them. You're not sure how to free yourself from this trap. Stuck can happen in your behaviors. You can get into a pattern of behavior or addiction and you don't know how to get out of it. And Maybe it's not so big that everybody knows about it, but it's... But that can make it worse in a sense because now you're stuck with it by yourself and you don't know how to break free from it. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's an emotional attitude or an emotional state that you're in. You can't get out of it. Maybe it's a sexual addiction, pornography, or something that you get stuck in. We all find ourselves stuck at times in life in circumstances, some of which are are our own doing some of which are the doings of others, and we don't know how to get out. You may be stuck in a career. You may be stuck in a job. You may be stuck somewhere in your life, but all of us have had these experiences where we're like Michael White. You know, We're stuck in some part of our life, and we just can't get out. And maybe you've even reached the point where you're looking up and saying, is there anybody on the other side of this camera that knows that I'm stuck? Is there anybody out there that can help me get unstuck? And maybe you've already pushed all the buttons that you know how to push. You've done all the tricks that you know how to do. You've done all of the things that you know how to do to get unstuck, and it's not working. And maybe you've even pulled the alarm, and that's not doing anything. And maybe you've tried to pry open the doors, and you find that there's a concrete wall right on the other side of that, and you try to get out of the escape hatch, and that stuck too. And maybe you have run the gamut of emotions from hopeful optimism to frustration to anger to fear and perhaps at times even to despair and resignation, but you can't make any progress. It was into a world full of people like this, full of people like you and me who at times find ourselves stuck in certain circumstances in our life, that a man came, 
about 2,000 years ago, and he had this ability to get people unstuck. We read about him meeting a woman who was stuck in a cycle of seeking her identity and her affirmation through sexuality and through the desire of men. She had been married and divorced five times when Jesus met her. She was already in a doomed relationship with someone else, and she's stuck in this cycle of guilt and shame and fear, and she's paralyzed by it. We don't know what started it, but we just find her in this state. And Jesus says to her, I'm going to get you unstuck. He says, if you'll drink the water that I'm going to give to you, a well of life will spring up inside of you. And that craving that you're trying to fulfill by grabbing a hold of all this other stuff, that craving is going to be gone because you'll just be nourished by the love and by the, by the wellspring of hope that will come if you'll listen to me and hear my words and follow me. We read about him meeting a man who was so bound up uh, through evil emotions and, and terrible emotions, uh, evil thoughts that he had had over the years. And he was haunted by his own demons so badly that he couldn't even interact in normal society. He was alienated from friends. In fact, they tried to chain him. The, 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 the community tried to chain him because he was just so, he was just so reckless. He was so self-harming uh, and harming others. Um, And he was powerless to break free from that. And Jesus, through a word and a touch, liberated from him, liberated him from that, got him unstuck. And he was sitting there at the end of Jesus's interaction with him, calm and in his right mind and clothed. And we read stories throughout the scripture over and over and over of Jesus coming to this world and saying, the reason that I have come is to set you free. I've come to liberate you. I've come to get you unstuck from the stuff that keeps trapping you over and over and over again. And so if you're here today and you find yourself somewhere in that story, you find that somewhere in your life, in some aspect of your life, if you dig down deep, you admit, I'm stuck and I can't get out of this. Jesus is saying to you today, I am here to set you free. Because it is not God's plan and it is not God's design for anyone to be stuck or fettered or chained or bound. He has come to set us free. It is God's design for you to be free. When God designed you, he designed you to be free. We're in this series where, and this is, this is our last uh, uh, this is our last episode of this series. This is our last installment of this series. Um, where we're exploring what the Bible says about what you were made for. And we talked about a few weeks ago, you were made for a purpose. And then you were made for greatness. And then last week we looked at Genesis chapter 2 and we said you were made for power. And if we look back in that same passage in Genesis 2, we get some theological insight about who we are and what we were made for and what God's purpose is. And I love in Genesis 2 it says this. It says, the Lord God took the man... And this is the beginning of creation and put him in the garden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the the man saying of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. In other words, the theological truth arising out of this passage is that you were made to be free. You were made to have maximum liberty in terms of your decisions, in terms of where you went and what you did and where you went. I want you to know that you can eat of every tree in this garden. I'm giving you maximum freedom. 
And then God says, but, but, so now we go, okay, wait, there's a little caveat, there's a condition, there's a boundary, there's going to be a perimeter around here, there's a condition to freedom. He said, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Now, I mentioned this a couple day, uh, Sundays ago. When we're in Genesis, if you're, if you're going to get sidelined this morning with thinking about, you know, is this literal? Is this allegory? Is this poetic? Is this metaphor? Put that, those questions to the side. We will address those at times. Understand the theological truth that's coming up out of this. And what God is saying is, I'm, I want you to know that you are made to be free, but there are some conditions, some constraints on your freedom. So when you read this, you may think, now, why would they put this constraint? Why would there be a constraint? If there wasn't this constraint, then you would be truly free. But I want to push back on this for a minute, and I want to try to get us to all wrap our heads around something. If God did not give humanity the option to choose whether or not to obey him, would we really be free? In other words, by introducing the restraint, God is actually introducing freedom of choice to us. Because if he didn't give us the option to choose, then we would not be free to choose. If I tell my son, son, I don't want you to go out on the street, okay? And then I never gave my son the opportunity to choose whether or not to obey me, my son wouldn't be free. My, my son would be trapped. If I said, I'm going to give you the opportunity, if I said, I don't want you to go out on the street, and then I never let him out of the house... He's not free to choose. So God actually introduces a restraint in order to give us freedom. He actually introduces a restraint to give us liberty to be able to choose. And why does he say this particular thing? Why does he say, do not eat of this particular tree? And the answer is, he says, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In other words, God gives us a small limitation in order to protect our greater liberty. Are you with me on this? God gives us a small limitation and says, I don't want you to do this because if you do this, then the liberty that you have in every other aspect of your life will be gone. If you eat of this tree, you'll die. Dead people don't have lots of choices. They don't move around that much. God is saying, I'm going to introduce this restriction in order to protect your ability to be free. Another way of saying it is, even God's boundaries are made for your liberty. Even God's boundaries are made for your liberty. When God introduces principles and, and boundaries and guidelines about the way we think and what we do with our lives and what we do with our bodies and what we do with our money, he's introducing these boundaries in order to liberate us for a fuller and greater life. I'm going to give you an illustration um, I'm going to ask Dom and Michelle to come up here. Um, Dom and, and Michelle both graduated from Webster University. They're both musicians. Uh, they've spent years of their life understanding the rules and principles of music theory and the rules and guidelines that govern how to play music. And uh, Dom and I were talking this week, and actually Michelle as well, and what we were saying is that if you don't follow any of the guidelines of music theory, if you don't obey any of the parameters, if you don't obey any of the rules of music, it doesn't enhance your creative freedom. It limits your creative freedom. 
because you don't even have the ability to play a single song. If you just pick up an instrument and you don't follow any of the rules or any of the guidelines or any of the uh, strictures or boundaries of music, you end up sounding something like this. Go for it. All right. Somebody might have liked that, but... You get, you get chaos, right? If you're just doing nothing, you're not obeying any, any rules of music. You're not obeying any of the guidelines, any of the principles of music. But if after years of careful learning and understanding and applying discipline to the rules and guidelines of music, you can end up playing something like this. Wow. Thank you. They could have just kept going. I mean, that was... The point that I want to make is that when God introduces parameters on your life, when he introduces principles that he, that he invites you and challenges you to follow, he's doing that for your greater freedom. If you go out onto the street, you're going to see lines on the street. And the lines mean stay in this lane, don't get in that lane. And those guidelines, those boundaries, those limitations, you may see those as constraining. But if they weren't there and people just drove anywhere they wanted on the street, your freedom of motion would be far greater limited than it is by, the ba- by having, than having the boundaries in place, in place. So God introduces these boundaries not because he wants to constrain you, not because he wants to limit you, not because he wants to hamper your growth or your development or your expressiveness or your abilities. God doesn't want to do anything like that because at his core, God is a liberator. At his very essence, God is a liberator. We see this throughout the scriptures. In fact, God, in, that, in, in Genesis, he introduces uh, you know, this liberty and says, go and, 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 and be free. And what happens is humanity over and over and over finds themselves entrapped because they don't follow the principles that lead to freedom. And so the whole Old Testament is just story after story after story of God liberating his people because they keep finding themselves trapped. In fact, I went through and looked at the number of different times that God delivered Israel because they would find themselves, for instance, they found themselves trapped by the Amalekites, and then God freed them. They found themselves trapped by the Amorites, and then God freed them. And then the Ammonites, and God freed them. And the Canaanites, and God freed them. And the Midianites, and God freed them. And the Perizzites, and the Moabites, and the Geshurites, and the Gerzites, and the Meonites, and the Philistines, and the Babylonians, and the Arameans, and the Cushites, and the Edomites, and the Assyrians, and the Egyptians. Over and over and over, Israel kept finding themselves trapped, and God would come in and rescue them. They kept disobeying his commands, getting trapped, finding themselves confined, and God would come in and he would rescue them. In fact, at one point in the scripture, 
God created a law for freedom. He created a law to make freedom happen because they kept, the Israelites kept finding themselves trapped. It's in, uh, the, the law is written actually in Leviticus. And here's what it says. It says, consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be what's called a jubilee. A jubilee for each of you is to return your family property and to your own clan. What happened in this law, what happened in Israel as a result of this law, is that every 50 years they would blow a trumpet. They would say, this is the year of jubilee. If you're a prisoner, you get out. If you're in debt, that debt has to be forgiven. If you've indentured yourself to someone else because you found yourself unable to to, uh, make money and make a living, you are to be set free from that. In fact, even the land is not to be cultivated on the 50th year. Everything is to be free. Everything is to be set free. Everything is, if you own property and you bought it from somebody because they, they couldn't afford to keep it, you give it back on the 50th year. It was a law of jubilee to say, God, God is saying, I just want you guys to be free. You keep getting yourselves trapped and I want you to be free. And then even Jesus, when he came and what he said was his mission he quoted Isaiah 61 and here's what he said he said the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those that are bound God doesn't want you to be bound in guilt and fear and shame and anger and unhealthy patterns and addictions and hang-ups and unhealthy thoughts and self-defeating attitudes. He wants to liberate you because that's who he is. At his core, he is a liberator. So how do we experience this liberation from God? How do we experience it in our lives? How does it happen when the rubber meets the road? So there are two ways that we find ourselves trapped. One way is through our own self. It's, it's, it's self-imposed confinement. We do things that end up trapping us. We get involved in things that end up harming us. And we keep finding ourselves stuck because of what we've done to ourselves. The other way is that we've, we find ourselves trapped because of what someone else did to us. It wasn't our fault. We didn't have anything to do with it. Someone did something to us that has, that has hampered our ability to be free. It's hampered our, lib- our liberty. And we found ourselves confined because of something that someone else did to us. So I want to take just a few minutes and explore freedom from those two different types of confinement. We experience freedom from self-imposed confinement through candid confession. If you find that you have boxed yourself in, if you've trapped yourself by your own thoughts and attitudes and actions, the best way to get out of that is through candid confession. Candid confession has two parts to it. Number one is you have to know. You have to know your condition. You have to know that you're trapped. You have to know that you're stuck. And then you have to admit it to someone else. So how do you know it? How do you know if your condition is a condition of freedom or not? Many of you just know it. You just say, I'm just stuck. I just know I'm stuck. Others, the, the, the worst kind of being stuck is folks who don't know they're stuck. Those are the worst ones. They don't know they're trapped. They think they're free. And you looking on the outside, and we have all had friends like this or family members or somebody in our life when we go, man, they're just stuck. They're just they're trapped, and they don't even know it. And if you ask them, hey, everything's going great right? So you have to know it. 
You, 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 you learn to know it through two means. One is through the Word of God. The, the Word of God is, is, is a mirror. It's a reflection. And when you read the Scripture, if you read it honestly, if you read it candidly, you start to look and see yourself in there, and you go, oh, yeah, that's not, that's not so great. There's some things in my life that I need to change that need to be different, right? I might be stuck in this area of my life. And the other way is through the people of God. You get around other people who will speak candidly into your life and who will speak truthfully into your life, who will speak openly into your life, right? If, you, if, you, if, you have, if your breath stinks, you want somebody to say, hey, man, here's a mint because your breath stinks. If your nose hairs are coming out, you need somebody to go, hey, let me just give you some nose clippers. And you just you need somebody, right, to speak candidly. My wife does all of that for me, and I'm really grateful. A um, lot of truth, a lot of truth. Um, we need somebody in our life to speak into our life about the things that are going on in our life that are not good. And if we don't recognize them ourselves, and if we're not recognizing them through the Word of God, then we do need brothers and sisters in real community with us who can speak openly and candidly into our life. And then once we know it, then we need to get to that point where we admit the truth about ourselves. We admit it. There was a story once about a man who went to a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist said, so are you depressed? And the man said, no. He said, are you angry? He said, no. He said, are you anxious? He said, no. He said, do you have a drinking problem? He said, no. Drug problem? No. Sexual addiction? No. Gambling problem? No. Doc said, well, okay, why are you here? Man said, I've got a lying problem. (laughs) That's just a slow ripple there. That was just taking some time. Oh, I get lying problem. In the 1930s, there was a man named Bill W., And as a teenager, Bill had great promise. He was the captain of his high school football team. He was the principal violinist in his school's orchestra. But he experienced a series of setbacks. He had had a lot of um, chaos in his early childhood. And then he started to have a number of setbacks uh, as he was growing up. He... uh, became... He he was at a party and and, and started to... um, He had started having a lot of struggles in his school... And uh, he started drinking pretty heavily. Um, and at first, it was not that big of a deal. Everybody in his environment was sort of drinking heavily like that. But then his kept going further. He became a, a, a hopeless alcoholic. He ended up having to drop out of law school. He started uh, uh, trying to work his way in business. But he kept ruining his reputation, not being able to show up to events, uh, just just showing up to events intoxicated. And, and his life just started going downhill. He found himself hospitalized four different times, and finally a doctor told his wife, her name was Lois, he said, here are your options. You're either going to have to have him locked up, or you're going to watch him go insane, or you're just going to have to let him die, because this guy is hopeless. There's no hope for him. And Bill knew that this was true about himself, and he was desperate. And one day, and he had tried all different, he had pushed all the buttons, But one day he met someone who invited him to come and meet with a small group of of Christians who had all been struggling with various addictions and and hang-ups like this. And they were trying to recreate sort of the early church experience where people would come together and they would, you know, do, they would self-examine rigorously and they would admit their flaws to one another and they would confess their sins to one another. And it was out of this group 
that Alcoholics Anonymous formed. And Bill W. became one of the founders of that group. And they have done amazing work helping hundreds of thousands of people free themselves from the chains of addiction. But it all started when a group of people came together and said, we need to be free. We're trapped. And the way that we get untrapped and the way that we get free from our self-confinement is to know what's going on and to admit what's going on. They wrote their very first step was we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And they went on and, and he, after he founded that, he went on and, and lived a life of freedom and sobriety for the rest of his life. When we get to the point where we can understand what's going on in our life and we can admit that candidly and openly to someone else, that's when we experience real freedom. Here's how the the Bible puts it. Proverbs 28. It says, he who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes his sins will have mercy. Silence is a prison. Justification is a jail. Lying is a lair. Dishonesty is a trap. But the truth is will set you free. So if you're in, in an, a situation or a circumstance right now where you say, I am stuck and nobody else knows it. The person next to me doesn't know it. And I am stuck in something that I can't get out of and I don't know how to get out of it. Let me just challenge you with this. Admit what that is. Find a place to confess what that is. Either get involved in a life group where you can get around some other people who are, you can trust and who are going to be supportive of you and who are going to care for you and are going to help you know, empower you and lift you and find a place to confess it. Or, find, or, or we have, we have uh, access to um, uh, counselors and therapists. And, and, but, but you've got to find a place where you can open up and, and free yourself from the self imposed confinement. So that's, that's the basic principle for freedom from self-imposed confinement. The question then is, all right, what if the confinement is not me, it's somebody else did something to me, and I find myself emotionally, spiritually, psychologically trapped as a result of something somebody else did to me that wasn't my fault? How do we free ourselves from that? How does Jesus free us from that? And here's his principle. He says, we experience freedom from the bondage of others through genuine forgiveness. I cannot overemphasize this point. I know we talk about forgiveness a lot here, uh, and that's because it's one of the central tenets of the faith. But forgiving someone else is the only way you will ever be free from the bondage that they have imposed upon you by whatever it is that they did to you. So you may, you may have gone through something, and I don't know about you, but when somebody does something to me that is unjust and it's not right, my first thought is not forgiveness. It just, that's not the first thought that comes to mind. My first thought is revenge. I want to get, when somebody cuts me off while I'm driving, you know, there is, I mean, it's like a trigger goes off in my head. I want to, I want to gun it. I want to find an opening. I want to pass them and I want to cut them off and I want to be just in front of them. And I might even want to slow down a little bit. (laughs) And I want to pull up to another car so that they can't pass me. That's what I want to do. In fact, one day, this is a couple years ago, I got a, a, an anonymous note in, on one of the connection cards. And it said, <laughs> only my wife knows this, but now everybody knows. Uh, and it said, hey, Pastor Brent, I just want you to know you cut me off uh, when you were driving down Brentwood. And I just want you to know that. Okay. <laughs> And I was like, did I cut someone off? 
probably, yeah, I'm sure I probably did. Um, so if that was you, I'm really sorry about that. I'm working on my driving. You got to forgive me if you want to be free. You better forgive me. Come on. <laughs> the, um, last night I was telling my boys a, a, a bedtime story. And I started to tell them the story of Joseph because I'd been reading it for today's sermon. And Lincoln stopped me as I started to tell the story. He said, wait a minute, is this a Bible story? And I said, yeah, this is a Bible story. And he goes, um, I really don't like Bible stories that much. I'm like, son, I'm the pastor of a church. You better start liking Bible stories. No. Uh, I said, what? why don't you like Bible stories? He said, you know, people just do the worst things to each other in Bible stories. He said, I just read, or they told us last week about these two brothers named Cain and Abel, and one of them killed the other one. And I was like, yeah, yeah. People do bad things to each other, son. That's why we have these Bible stories. And I, and I started telling them about the story of Joseph and how Joseph was despised by his brothers. He was favored by his father. And his 11 brothers or 10 of his brothers just didn't like him. They were jealous of him. They were angry with him. He had these wild dreams and aspirations. And they said, one of the brothers said, hey, let's kill him. Let's kill this guy. And fortunately, cooler heads prevailed and, and said, no, let's not do that. Let's just throw him down into a, a well. Let's throw him into a pit. And, let's, you know, and then when, when some merchants came by, they sold him to some merchants on their way to Egypt. And they took his coat and they soaked it in goat's blood and they gave it to his dad. And they said, we don't know what happened, but it looks like a, a wild animal came and killed your son. And they sent Joseph off to Egypt. And, you know, when you read the story, you see for de- decades, Joseph goes through all sorts of craziness in his life. He starts to get ahead a little bit and he works for a man named Potiphar. And then he's, he's accused of, of, of uh, making advances on Potiphar's wife or of trying to, to, to rape her or sexually assault her. Then he's thrown into prison and he's stuck in prison for years. And uh, then he tries to help out some guys in prison and they forget about him. And over the period of years and years and years, he ultimately ends up in, the, in Pharaoh's court, and you know the story. Eventually, he's raised to a, a, a position of prominence. And when, his, when a famine strikes the land and his brothers come to Egypt to get help, they end up coming to him for help. Of course, they don't know it's him, but he knows it's them. He knows these are the guys that abused me, that lied about me, that sold me into slavery, that threw me into a pit, that wanted to kill me. And here they are coming and asking me for help because they don't have food and they don't have money and they need some help. If anybody had the right for revenge, if anybody had the right to bring down the hammer, it was Joseph. And the story is so compelling, so incredibly moving because Joseph is in the room with them, and, and they don't know it's him, and over and over he can't contain his emotion. He keeps running out of the room because he doesn't want to see, they don't, he doesn't want them to see him cry. And ultimately he reveals himself to, to them, and he says, I'm your brother, and I love you guys. I forgive you. I'm still your brother. I know you messed up, 
but I will take care of you. And they can't even believe it. They think he's going to eventually come around and kill him. And he says, no, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to take care of you. Bring dad, bring the family, bring everybody. I forgive you. It's this, you know, these Bible stories, that's, that's the thing Lincoln wanted to know. How does this end before we get too into it? Like, well, it ends good, son. There's this forgiveness. There's this depth of forgiveness because Joseph doesn't want to remain trapped by what his brothers did to him decades earlier. He wants to be free. And he forgives them. And it's just a, a beautiful, beautiful act of forgiveness. Jesus puts it like this. He says, when you stand praying, if you hold anything, anything against anybody, forgive them. That's powerful. If you hold anything against anyone, forgive them. Anything against anyone, big or small. You may be saying, well, you know what? I've never been sold into you know, into slavery. I don't have my, my brothers never did, you know, you know, maybe, but are there some things that you're holding on to with somebody at work or with a spouse? Somebody said something a while back or a friend did something or said something. If you have anything against anyone, forgive them so that your father in heaven may forgive you. If you want to be free from the pain and the oppression and the injustice and the hurt and the abuse that you have experienced at the hands of others, You have to forgive. You have to forgive. In our 21 days of prayer, uh, which is today's the last day. Amen. Prayer and fasting, 21 days. We just, I won't get into it, but it was an amazing 21 days up in the family center. Um, But a couple days ago, we read this passage out of Romans 12. It said, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. You know what that says? It says the act of forgiveness is actually an act of trust. When you forgive someone else, what you are saying is, God, I trust you to take care of what needs to be taken care of. I'm not going to avenge myself against this person. I trust that your your justice will prevail. I trust that you will bring justice. I'm confident. I'm confident in you, God. Ultimately, I'm going to give myself over to you, and I'm going to allow you to take care of what needs to be taken care of. In fact, the verse goes on to say, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. Because in doing so, you will heap burning coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but but overcome evil with good. What that's saying is, When you treat someone, when you don't return evil for evil, when you return good for evil, that can prompt uh, the, the coals or just the shame, the guilt, and maybe even repentance in that person. You may bring that person hope. You may free that person by forgiving that person. Do not return evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, if you want to get off of the cycle of resentment and anger and hostility and bitterness. Here's how we do it. We experience freedom from the cycle of slavery through obedience to the law of love. This is the last point I want to make. We get off the cycle of entrapment and freedom and entrapment and freedom and entrapment and freedom when we bind ourselves to the law of love. There's only one law that is stronger than death. There's only one force that is stronger than hate. There's only one attitude that can eradicate bitterness. There's only one salve that can heal the wounds of oppression, and and that is the law of love. That is when we, Dr. King said it like this, you know, on on, on MLK uh, weekend. This kept coming up on the Facebook feeds. It said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. 
Hatred cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Jesus, after he had been beaten and mocked and spit upon, his accusers had tormented him and bludgeoned him and tortured him and hunted him down and stripped him naked and nailed him to a cross. He said, I want to experience the greatest moment of freedom. And so with his arms outstretched, he looked down at his oppressors and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then he gave up the ghost and he's calling you and me to experience that same freedom in our life today. Freedom from our own self-imposed prison and freedom from the prison imposed upon you by others. And freedom means that you bind yourself to the one who came to set you free. You don't have to be stuck in the elevator anymore. You can be free. Next week, we're going to start a series um, called House in Order, where we're going to talk about priorities in the way we live and and get into some of the nitty-gritty details of this. But the broad stroke is that if you really want to be free, align yourself with the one who sacrificed everything. Give yourself over to him and let him free you. He knows when you're afraid. He knows when you're angry. He knows when you're hungry. He knows when you're hurt. And when we open our lives to him, to the law of his love, he sets us free. He whom the Son has set free is free indeed. So here's what I want to do to end this service today. Let's all just close our eyes, and I'm going to pray in just a minute. Let's just close our eyes. And I want to ask you if there's any sort of confinement in your life, if there's an area of your life where you're stuck or you're trapped or there are circumstances in your life that you can't seem to free yourself from or some attitude or feeling or hurt or anger in your life that you can't free yourself from, then would you, and no one will know, and I won't ask you to fill anything out and you won't ask you to stand up or go somewhere or go in a back room and get baptized or anything like that. I'm not going to do any of that. But if that's you, there's some part of your life, would you just make the physical move to raise your hand and just acknowledge it before God, before no one else, but just acknowledge it before God and just open up your heart just this moment. Awesome, you guys. Awesome. And just say, God, I want to be free. Lord, as we are here today and we listen to your word and we know that you've made us for freedom. We know that you are a deliverer. We know that you are a liberator. We know that there is nothing that you don't want for us, but the only thing you want for us is freedom. God, I just pray that each and every one of us, if we're, if we're suffering from a self-imposed confinement, I pray today that each and every one of us would find that moment where we can confess it before you and we can open our hearts and we can confess it to somebody else and begin the healing process. Begin removing the, the wound, uh, removing the, the, the bandage or removing the, the scab off the wound and opening it up to you and, and letting your light shine and bringing healing to whatever that is in our life that's got us stuck and hung up. God, I just pray for each person here that raised their hand. I pray for each one of us that knows that we're stuck in some area of our life. God, help us, Lord, to to open up our life and open it up to your love and open it up to your grace. God, I pray for those of us who have experienced some kind of confinement from somebody else. Somebody else did something to us, said something to us, acted in a way that was damaging to us, hurt us, abused us, 
uh, oppressed us in some way, I pray, God, that each and every single one of us here would begin to forgive that person, forgive those people who have done that so that we can be free, so that we don't remain trapped by a, a confinement that, that, that happened a long time ago. God, I pray that each and every one of us can begin the process today of letting go of that, of putting our trust in you, of putting our confidence in you, of knowing that you are in charge, that you're sovereign, and that your justice will be meted out and your mercy will be meted out and that, that, that you're in control and that you've got us in the palm of your hand. Father, I pray that each and every one of us today can get off of that cycle of slavery and bind ourselves with the law of love and bind ourselves to the sacrifice that you made and be free. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.